1: It is 8.07 in the Twin Cities, a little chilly, still 22 degrees out there. Well, now it's time to kind of chat about some political issues with Professor Stephen Shear, uh, of Carleton College. Although, Stephen Shear, you are actually formerly retired, but we can still call you with, say you're with Carleton College.
2: Yeah, Carleton will still claim. They'll still claim
1: you, okay. <laughs> well, you're kind enough to do this, and you certainly are very active in terms of you know, writing. You had an article in the Pioneer Press about some of the takeaways from this election, and you had some very interesting points. I thought, um, and, and now that you've had even more time to kind of go over the results, um, what are some of the biggest takeaways for you?
2: Well, I got four quick ones I can put out there. Uh, the first one is, you know, the suburban sweep in Minnesota. Uh, 16 of the 18 state House seats that were gained by the Democrats were in the Twin City suburbs. So that was a really big move from the GOP to uh, the Democrats uh, in the suburbs. And the, there's a national pattern that this is part of. You saw also similar things happening in suburbs uh, all the way from Philadelphia to Seattle, uh, with Republicans losing U.S. and state uh, legislative seats. So uh, that's the first thing, big suburban sweep. Second, um, what we really saw in Minnesota this time, May, was what I'd call a regional realignment. Greater Minnesota, rural Minnesota is becoming more Republican and redder, and the metro, which is, after all, where most people live, is emphatically more democratic and you see that in the US House uh, races where the Republicans won the 8th district in northeastern Minnesota the 1st district in southern Minnesota uh, and the Democrats won the second and the third which are suburban in the metro so that's the second pattern and then the third thing that I thought was really striking in Minnesota was the electoral weakness at the top of the ballot for Republicans You know, Jeff Johnson lost to Tim Waltz in the governor's race by 12%. And remember, four years ago, he lost by 5% to Mark Dayton. So that's not a good trend for the GOP. And Karen Housley was hoping for an upset, finished 11 percentage points behind Tina Smith. And when you have that big of a a problem at the top of the ticket, it often affects uh, the party further down the ballot. And you could see that happening in the state legislative races as well. And the last thing I'll say, the, la- the fourth thing I'd say, is that there was a real financial disparity. Uh, Tim Walz outspent Jeff Johnson by three or four to one, similar disproportion in the U.S. Senate race. Uh, if you look nationally, one of the reasons that the Democrats took the House is they had raised significantly more money than the Republicans and were able to it in competitive races, and they won a whole bunch of really close House races, and money had something to do with that.
1: I, I would like to ask you, um, you know, starting with that, um, Republicans did, though, hold the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something, an aberration? And I know that there were a lot more Democratic seats that were up, uh, and, and that was a problem. Yeah.
2: But, yeah. but uh, it, Why'd that happen? Yeah, and this gets to the broader question as may have, was there a wave? You know, was this a wave election? And Sean Trend, who's the election analyst for Real Clear Politics website, which is an excellent website, by the way, um, says, well, you can't really call it a wave, and uh, for the reason you just mentioned, You know, yes, the House was a very good night for the Democrats nationally, but the Senate produced additional Republican seats. That's not a wave. Uh... If you look at the governors' races, Democrats did pick up some governor seats, but some of the biggest states like Florida and Ohio remained Republican. Um, and like so, when you look across a variety of different indicators, state legislative seats, yes, Democrats picked up some seats, but it wasn't a huge turnover across the nation in state legislatures. So it was a real mixed bag. It was a good night for Democrats. Did they sweep across the board? No, they did not.
1: Well, I and I think you know here in in Minnesota, I, I think it was a very good night for Democrats. Oh, yeah. Although the, the the number, the actual number of members of Congress from both parties didn't change. There's still three Republicans right, and, right. And, and and five Democrats. It's just that two districts, or actually I guess four districts, flipped. Right, um, and, and and that's one of the points that you you have here. That is something that we're seeing you know increasingly and it's it's the reason the pre- the president won but if you're talking about these demographics the democrats are doing better and better in places where there are more people that's right. that's, that's not a good way for republicans to be moving
2: no and if you look inside the state Yes, you see a Republican trend in rural Minnesota, but that trend is not as strong, or at least it wasn't on Election Day, as the Democratic trend in the metro area, because Democratic strategists had turnout uh, turnout targets for... Uh, Democratic votes throughout the metro, and their targets were exceeded everywhere. They just didn't know where all these votes were coming from. That is a wave. You know, at right. the metro area, there's no question there was a Democratic wave, and that involved more seats and more votes than any Republican wave in rural Minnesota.
1: In that first district, in fact, we just heard uh, at the top of the hour the fact that Dan Fee and the Democrat there just conceded yesterday because it was very very close it was not close in the 8th congressional district but that was a very tight
2: race and, yeah, and 1300 votes uh, district wide because <laughs> that's really a tight one
1: that, that and, and obviously that's something where um you did see Tim Walls in his win for governor which as you pointed out mm-hmm. was so substantially better um I mean he, he really beat Jeff Johnson handily by 12 points and Jeff Johnson only lost by 5 points four years ago but uh walls was able to pick up a lot of counties in oh, yeah. southern minnesota which of course is his old district and mm-hmm. and so clearly that there there was a lot of you know positive feelings there for him in in some of those areas but but the numbers game and and the fact that the democrats did come out i mean there were certainly some people who benefited uh, Notably, uh, somebody I'm going to be talking to tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. on, on TV and that is uh, somebody who looked like he could be really in trouble and that was uh, the attorney general-elect, Keith Ellison. He pulled out that race and a lot of people weren't sure if he was going to be able to do it. Um, the urban votes definitely put him over the edge, didn't they?
0: Oh,
2: yeah. And if you had asked me to pick one indicator of whether it was a good night for Democrats, I'd probably pick this race. And if you had told me that Tim Walz was going to win – or Tim Walz, that uh, Keith Ellison was going to win – by 4 percentage points statewide. I'd say wow <laughs> cuz he was the weakest performer on the ticket. That means a really huge night for Democrats in Minnesota and it tended up tended to be that way.
1: Right. In in terms of um and you also started off by talking about the state legislature and you had a um a fascinating t- statistic that I hadn't heard before about the 18 seats and um, that 16 went for Democrats.
2: Yeah, in the metro. 16, in, 16, there are only two seats in greater Minnesota that flipped to the Democrats. 16 of the 18 were in the suburban ring around the metro.
1: Okay. What what was it there? Was it just anti-Trump? Was it you know, the, the, the pro-gun control groups really hit these seats hard as well?
2: What were some of the factors there? Well, you know, there are a bunch of things. First of all, quality candidate recruitment, uh, hardworking candidates who are well-known in their state legislative districts, superior funding, which I mentioned before, which was also true at the state legislative level. Um, And then uh, I think Trump is a factor. Um, The reason I'd say that is that... uh, Amy Walter, who's a very good analyst for the National Cook Political Report, has examined what happened nationwide, and she found that the uh, U.S. House races really correlated very much with Trump's support in uh, 2016 in those regions, and... uh, what I think we saw in the metro is that uh, Trump's support is not very healthy. It wasn't in 2016. It was greater Minnesota that really went for Trump in a huge way. You know, the 7th District in northwestern Minnesota, Trump carried by 31%. That's where he was really strong. And uh, he, I think the Trump factor in the metro was definitely a problem for the Republicans, and they have that uh, to deal with going forward
1: but isn't it also the case that i mean democrats one thing we learned in 2016 which i think nobody saw coming uh because a lot of people didn't think the president was going to win that election is that people weren't democrats were not enthused right, right. A- about coming out to vote for hillary clinton maybe they all thought she was going to win yes but, but but there wasn't that enthusiasm so you saw a surge in, in in more democrats coming out
2: right but this time it's a it's much more of a referendum on trump <laughs> you right. know, do you, uh, it's not Trump versus who, whomever else is running against him, but Trump as president. And we know that he is a very polarizing figure and that a lot of people have made up their minds pretty firmly about him, And there are a lot of people, Democrats and independents, who do not like him. Right. <laughs> you know, and uh, I think that that was a factor in Minnesota, and it was in other states as well. All right,
1: uh, listen, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about a point that Professor Sheer made about the fact that statewide, the statewide candidates for the Republicans once again did not fare well. In fact, they lost really significantly, decisively. So, more with Stephen Shear after this on News Radio eight three zero WCCO. It is 821 in the evening here on a Saturday night. We've dropped just a little bit, 20 degrees. We'll have weather here in a few minutes. But right now we're talking with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College uh, about some of the breakout points uh, that he actually wrote up very succinctly in the Pioneer Press a couple of days ago about the breakout points from the election, the takeaways. And you said something earlier that I thought was so interesting about the statewide uh, Candidates, mm-hmm. for instance, um, uh, Jeff Johnson really got crushed, twelve points. Uh, Karen Housley, state senator Karen Housley, that a lot of people thought was going to do a lot better, she loses by eleven points. You've got an embattled uh, Keith Ellison who pulls it out with four or five points. Uh, once again, there's still there still has not been. Uh, a, a statewide Republican elected statewide Minnesota since 2006 mm-hmm. when Governor Pawlenty ran for reelection. You also mentioned, you know, um, in the House races about recruiting good candidates. State Senator Karen Housley was pretty, I thought, charismatic, mm-hmm. uh, certainly had, um, you know, I think she spoke well. I did think it was interesting, though, that after, the, after Senator Franken resigned – Everybody was expecting all these Republicans to jump in and and, and fight for this seat and, and fight to be the Republican standard bearer. And she was the only one. And I remember, you know, talking to her about it, to, to Senator Housley, and she acknowledged that she was surprised she was the only one. Uh What is it exactly? And why haven't they been able to, you know, come up with something? I mean, Donald Trump certainly almost won Minnesota a couple of years ago.
2: All right. Well, here's an ironic fact for you. If uh – uh which uh, governor got the highest percentage of the statewide vote in state history? It was Arnie Carlson, Republican, 1994, running for re-election. Highest percentage in the history really? of the elections.
1: And and the Republicans don't, haven't always been happy to claim him.
2: (laughs) Well, but that, doesn't that tell you something? (laughs) Because, because he is,
1: he was always, Governor Carlson obviously a Republican, but he was somebody who really clashed a lot with his own party because he was much more moderate than, than many Republicans. And in fact, I think in recent years, I think he's, you know, been endorsing candidates that are not Republicans.
2: That's, that's correct. Uh, but, uh, Tim Pawlenty, when he won uh, in 2006, won by only 20,000 votes statewide, so that was a squeaker. And since then, uh, you haven't seen a, a really competitive candidate. And I think the reason is that the party has become so uniformly conservative that they are not willing to consider more electable candidates who might fare better. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Carla Nelson, state representative from... Uh, state senator from Rochester, was running against Jim Hagedorn for the Republican endorsement in the 1st District. And I remember talking to a, a Republican strategist on election night who said, you know, if Carla Nelson had been the nominee... This would not be a close race because she had votes she could get from Rochester that Jim Hagedorn never could get. Uh, but the party wanted somebody who was more conservative, and that uh, almost cost him a, a, a representative seat in the first district. Um, also, we have to bring up Jason Lewis, uh, who won a multi-candidate primary. Uh, uh, back in uh, 2016, and uh, was the most controversial and outspoken of those candidates. And uh, guess what? His outspokenness came up again and again in 2016 and 2018, and the district that uh, John Klein had won by double digits ends up electing a Democrat by six points. Right. Right so uh I think you've got a real recruitment problem here. You are picking people who are ideologically exciting the activists of the party, but they can't get votes from the broader electorate. And those are two examples right there.
1: Right. And obviously, Congressman Lewis did try and, you know, stake out positions or did try and portray himself as somebody who was not mm-hmm. extremely conservative. But certainly, you know, for having been on the radio for – decades here in the twin yeah. cities and 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 being very successful being a very conservative talk show host uh, that that track record was there and it was brought up once again repeatedly right, but
2: that was that actually helped him in the primary but right. it was not helpful in the general election
1: right cuz it does seem it does seem extraordinary and i did think that that karn housley was going to do better mm-hmm. uh, and cuz some of the polls certainly looked tighter but at, at the end of the day i think the the, the the strength of that vote in in Hennepin County was
2: enormous. Well, and the real uh, leading indicator of that was the huge turnout in the Democratic primary in the summer. Um, You know, it dwarfed the Republican primary, and it was much higher than many people expected. And that enthusiasm showed up again on Election Day in November and really produced a lot of victories for the Democrats. Right.
1: And and, and the question is, you know, going forward, will that –
2: well, it will yeah. it continue?
1: Well, I continue.
2: Yes. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> right.
1: Um but but so so far um you know and and I, I like the fact you also sort of mentioned the, the the legislature because you do have this democratic legislature. You've got the Senate that's hanging by one vote yes. <laughs> in Minnesota. And and this didn't there were so many things in in play here this election that I feel like those of us in the news media really didn't do enough justice to these, you know, the, the legislative races mm-hmm. and and the the vote for the legislature because th- this is so important it affects so many issues for so many people. But obviously you've got Congressman Elect Walls who was you know saying hey listen I I crushed it I won by a lot mm-hmm. and um uh, then you've got obviously this Democratic legislature you've got uh, Speaker. Designate, uh, Melissa uh, Hortman. Yeah. And you've got this one vote majority in the Senate. What are your thoughts about what Governor Walls can or cannot do?
2: Well, there's one thing that really does need to happen that has gotten very little mentioned lately, but that is tax compliance with the new federal tax law. I hate to break it to you, Esme, but uh, you are going to have to itemize deductions on your state form when you'll take a standard deduction on the federal form. So you're going to need two sets of records. Sorry. (laughs) Yikes. Okay.
1: Uh, But do you think they'll be able to get more done than they have in the the past?
2: Uh, I think that Waltz is more inclined to engage and find ways forward than Mark Dayton was. Uh, Mark Dayton really didn't like to deal with legislators with whom he disagreed and he took sort of a passive aggressive, you know, that classic minister approach of passive-aggressive with the legislature. I don't think Walt will do that. First of all, Walt has a career as a lawmaker uh, and he has had some bipartisan successes in the U.S. House. He's going to be looking for common ground. and If I were giving him advice, I would tell him to lead in his agenda with those items where he can get some Republican support and get quick victory Quick victories can then lead to new opportunities. Uh, If you lead with a really partisan agenda and run into roadblocks in the Senate, I think everything bogs down from there.
1: Right. And, and, And again, that lead in the Senate, very close. And the Senate wasn't up. Right, um, you know. So, so, I mean, that in another couple of years, the Senate will be up.
2: Right, and I, it'll be up in the presidential year. And I think that uh, senators have to, Republican senators have to be very worried about what they saw in this election, and they have to figure out a way forward that can actually improve the popularity of their agenda and their party. Not an easy task
1: in in terms of the tax policy that you mentioned to getting um you know, Minnesota in compliance, I mean that's got to happen pretty soon,
2: <laughs> well, yeah, the sooner it happens, uh, the uh, more will save in uh, in tax preparation expenses. That's for sure <laughs> right because it
1: gets pretty complicated all right oh, yeah. well, well, listen, um we're going to take a break and give you some weather because a lot of people might be traveling. Uh, this is of course, the Thanksgiving week. But, uh, when we come back, I'd like to talk to Professor Shear about his thoughts about going forward, because 2020 suddenly we've turned the corner, and, and are some of these trends that he has pointed out so clearly, what does he think, will those continue, and how will the president have to approach his agenda Given the trends that we saw emerging in twenty eighteen. All right, folks, let's take a quick break. Uh we'll give you some weather and then we'll have more with Professor Shear after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. <clears throat> it is eight thirty seven in the Twin Cities, twenty degrees, as May Murphy with you until nine o'clock, along with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. Uh, Let me ask you, Professor Shear. you're somebody who looks at the history of of elections and and presidencies. This has been a a presidency unlike any other, I think it's fair to say, in so many ways uh, in terms of of sort of – a president who really has uh, has swings in terms of his positions or what he says about different things uh, on so many issues where do you see in terms of the trends that you highlighted in your article in the pioneer press a couple of days ago as we go forward because the handicapping for 2020 already starting
2: mm-hmm. Well, you're right about swings and what the president says, and we've been zigging and zagging this very week. I just have to mention that he has endorsed Nancy Pelosi to be elected as Speaker of the House, which no one really expected, and said he would deliver Republican votes for her. Very unlikely, Esme. I don't know where these things come from. But. Right, right, and well, in,
1: in, in in that 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 news, one of the news conferences that I saw, he he went on and on about what a great job she was doing. Yeah, and and, and I, people were kind of going, whoa. And then, then right after that, you know, hours later, and and he was also asked at that very news conference, uh, and what about the attorney general? Do you still have confidence with him? And he said, I'm not going to get into that right now. Hours later. Jeff Sessions is fired.
2: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, uh, it's quite possible he'll turn on Nancy Pelosi very quickly too. So his rhetoric is, uh, unpredictable. And uh, uh, I think that makes uh, his future relations with the Democratic House unpredictable. I, the only thing I think is likely to uh, be to occur over the next two years is a steady stream of Republican judicial confirmations to the federal judiciary uh, through a Republican Senate, because now filibustering is no longer possible. Um, That, I know, is going to happen. Uh, Can we get a budget passed? Can he make any sort of agreement with Democrats? Can he bring Republicans along? All of that remains very, very uncertain. So uh, I'm afraid it's a foggy future.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, and one of the reasons I thought that maybe he was, you know, urging, you know, I guess the likely next speaker of Nancy Pelosi to once again become speakers because he wanted another foil (laughs) (laughs) to to have somebody to have somebody he can kind of, you know, berate and and sort of demonize because he, he certainly did that with secretary Clinton at very successfully in in winning the election. But I think one of his most popular targets, other targets has been Nancy Pelosi. Right. But in, in terms of, um, you know, bringing people along. I mean, clearly, this is somebody who really enjoys campaigning. I mean, he was yeah. out there, you know, holding these rallies. We saw them here in Minnesota. I mean, he he thrives on this. And, right. and not everybody, not every elected official does, but he really seems to enjoy that. I mean, this is a guy who's a really good campaigner.
2: Yeah, um, I, I can't resist uh, bringing up a story from uh, the Ross Perot campaign back in the 1990s when Ross Perot was uh, running for president. He had hired a, a Republican operative, Ed Rollins, and, and uh, he started. To, Perot started to get some flack along the way, and uh, he said that Rollins, when does this get to be fun again? And Rollins says. Well, when you are on the dais dedicating your presidential library, <laughs> that's when it gets to be fun again. Uh, and that's, I think, the situation that uh, Trump finds himself in now. He does like conflict, and he's going to have more of it because that's his temperament. And uh, the Wall Street Journal, which is often friendly to him, uh, said that he has, uh, I'm just quoting, he has what might be called a likability gap with the public, and he's very good, as may, at working his base and getting them excited. What he hasn't done in this presidency is convince other people to change their minds and support him, and he'll need to do that between now and Election Day 2020.
1: Right. Although he – and for the base, though, he may not have won over people, but, but those um, – I was speaking to – doing an interview with uh, the current Minnesota House Speaker, Kurt Dowd, who yeah. won't, won't be – House Speaker for very long because, as you pointed out, Democrats did take the Minnesota House. But he said that their research shows, that that the Minnesota Republicans' research shows that in the areas where Mr. Trump was very popular or did very well in 2016, he's 10 points more popular. I I don't know if you buy that. I
2: do. I do. Yeah, because uh, uh, in areas where – and you could see that in his 2018 uh, strategy for rallies. He was going to the areas where he was popular in order to juice turnout, like southeastern uh, Missouri, uh, Montana, places like that. You notice he stayed out of Minnesota in the last month um, Probably because uh, he could he could juice up more votes in redder states than in Minnesota now I, uh, there's something else I need to bring up this month this week uh, which is that uh, uh, a political action committee associated with the Trump campaign or at least uh, publicly linked with the Trump campaign has said they're going to target Minnesota for Trump in 2020 and uh, I, I don't know if they've looked at the 2018 election results of Minnesota but i don't understand why they would make Minnesota one of their top states based on what happened this month in the elections in this state
1: really well you know i i think i, I think one of the things that i've seen in in you know the president's appearances and i actually was just going back um in in both those rallies in duluth and in rochester he had one in duluth in that was in june cuz i was there the one in rochester was just uh late october or early October mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. um, he said again and again, One more visit, and I could have won this state one more visit and one thing that I was doing I was going back and and, and uh looking at a story i was I did a story this week on um Sheriff Rich Stanick who Uh, lost the Hennepin County Sheriff's Race.
2: Well, that's one of the biggest surprises of the night.
1: Right. But congratulated his opponent, Sheriff Dave, Sheriff-elect Dave Hutchinson, and then did an interview with me saying that he wasn't conceding. So I was (laughs) trying to figure that out. But, uh, I mean, we could talk about that, that too, because that, that I think was certainly a reflection on those Democratic votes. But one of the things I thought was so interesting in going back and doing some research. I was trying to get the uh, video from when Sheriff Stanick was with the other sheriffs at the white house meeting with the president and in that round table, which occurred very shortly after he was sworn in. So I think it was February of 2017, early February, 2017, the president again, and, and I'd forgotten this says to, you know, rich Stanick, Oh yes, Minnesota. I, I, one more time, one more, one more visit. I could have won there. And I, I think this is somebody who enjoy the president enjoys winning. I, I really think he believes that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think he sees that this is a state he could win because of how well he did.
2: Well, a- but there are a couple things that happened in 2016 that will not happen in 2020. First – uh, Trump snuck up on people throughout the fall. Everybody thought he was losing. Everybody thought Apparently he, he did too. T- <laughs> yeah, he did too. Well, when you're President of the United States, you don't sneak up on anybody. Uh, you know. And I think you already see that in the way Democrats organized and raised so much money in 2018. They outraised the Republicans. Uh, so Trump will be known and will be planned for by Democrats. And Who know know he could win. Yeah, yeah. They know he could win. And they will, I think, uh, take everything he does more seriously than they did in 2016. So that's a significant challenge for Trump. And then when you talk about Minnesota, I think you have to look at current electoral trends, where the votes are and which party's getting them. And as of 2018, that's got to be the Democratic Party.
1: You know, I think think that's such an interesting point, uh, you know, that he is a known quantity. And I think when we look at... And I think you—you know—I've mentioned this before. I think that there were 180,000 fewer Democrats that came out in Minnesota uh, in 2016 right. than did uh, in 2012 when Barack Obama was running for re-election. And I think part of that was a lack of enthusiasm for Secretary Clinton. But I think part of it is kind of what you just referred to
2: yeah she's got this so don't worry yeah yeah it's like,
1: it's like yeah big big deal I, I've, he's not going to win there's no way he's going to win i'm not going to vote and i think and that's what happened
2: yeah but that that's, that won't be 2020 because he has won and and democrats will be motivated in a way they were not in 2016 regardless of who their nominee is
1: right Alright, listen, uh, chatting with uh, Professor Stephen Shear, we brought up the sheriff's race in Hennepin County, uh, a big surprise. Let's talk about that briefly when we come back, but first let's take a break and pay some bills. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 20 degrees in the Twin Cities. May Murphy with you for a few more minutes with Professor Stephen Scheer. I do want to give a shout-out to the producer of this show, Susan Blanche, and also to producer Shaletta Brundage. Uh, Professor Shear, you, you mentioned uh, one of the biggest surprises of the night was the loss of Sheriff Rich Stanick in Hennepin County. Uh, he lost by, I think, 2,300 votes. Uh, he's somebody who has been a sheriff uh Three terms, he was the commissioner of public safety before that uh, under the Pawlenty administration briefly for two years. Uh, he was also a state legislator from Maple Grove. This was a stunner and I think this kind of shows once again the big DFL turnout because this Dave Hutch Hutchinson who beat him, uh, who is a virtual unknown, is a metro transit uh, police sergeant, uh, Won by 2,300 votes. He was the DFL-endorsed candidate.
2: Right, uh, and a fellow who has, uh, has admitted to campaign finance problems. that came up in the middle of the campaign. Uh, Stanek was a known Republican in the Democratic wave year in Hennepin County. If you look at the geographic distribution of the vote, you'll see that Stanek did well outside of Minneapolis, but was buried in Minneapolis. Uh, and that ultimately uh, sealed his fate.
1: Right, and and one of the things um he said because I did the interview with him is that he said I, I won, and I can't remember the exact number. I won in forty three cities.
2: Yeah, right. Oh, forty three out of forty four. Yeah, but the, there, pr- the, the problem there, there is one big city that he's not <laughs> carrying, and that right. made the difference. <laughs> and, and
1: and and you know, it, it was interesting too because in when we talked to the folks in Hennepin County elections, you know, they kept talking about the early voting and how big it was, and uh, Jenny Gelms, who is the uh, elections manager for Hennepin County, and also I was hearing this from Casey Carl, who handles it in Minneapolis, they were saying, I don't think this is just early voting. I think it's going to be really high mm-hmm. on Election Day. And And that proved too, because one of the things everyone was trying to figure out is just are people finally getting used to the convenience yeah. of being able to vote early? And I think there is part of that, but it was also an indication that – Democrats were energized.
2: Right. It was the second indication leading to November. As I mentioned, you had the huge Democratic primary turnout in Hennepin County, you know, in right. the summer. Then you have this very large early vote. And then on when you add it all up in November, you've got a 77% turnout in Hennepin County above the state average, which was even then a, a very high number of 64%. Most states don't get to 64% in presidential election years. Right. but. It, uh,
1: 77% in heavily Democratic uh, Hennepin County. And, and you know, you, you brought that up, too, the, the, the heavy turn on the August primary, because I know that every year there's a little bit of a look at, at whether that primary should be moved to June. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that perhaps would that be a dissuading factor there?
2: Yeah, I think potentially it is. Um uh, uh, it, it's quite remarkable that in August you'd get this degree of turnout, you know, uh, and I don't know if we'll see that again.
1: Right, all right. And then another feature of the 2020 election year, uh, there will be a presidential primary in Minnesota. Uh,
2: yes, and this will be, I think, the first seriously contested presidential primary in Minnesota. We've had them in the past, but they were just beauty contests without delegate allocation. So uh, this is a completely different ball game for us.
1: All right, and obviously that contest... Will be, uh, will be a tough one. Listen, Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College, thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you, Esme. Absolutely. Uh, Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. All right, folks. Again, I do want to give a shout out to Susan Blanche, uh, the producer of this show and Ms. Shaletta Brundage, who is on uh, the boards here uh, producing the show, but also will be keeping the studio warm or trying to stay warm in the studio, <laughs> which isn't easy tonight. We both are actually, um, uh, I'm wearing my new down coat, which is almost floor length. It's really cozy. And porcelain is bundled up in blankets and a hat and gloves and <laughs> trying to stay warm. So you know, I, I wonder sometimes about workplaces, and we have that certainly at uh, WCCO-TV. It can be really cold, and I think they're just trying to keep everybody awake all night. But um, I do want to invite you to tune in to WCCO-TV uh, Sunday morning at 6 a.m., And at 10.30 a.m., Mike Agustinac and I will be there. Uh, We all have a special guest on – at the 10.30 show, we will have the man who is the Attorney General-elect for the state of Minnesota, Keith Ellison. And Congressman Ellison, he's still a congressman and will be through the first week in January. We'll also do a Facebook Live uh, at 11 a.m. right after that show ends. But a lot to talk about with him. Uh, he won the statewide race for Attorney General. Uh, he was faced with claims by an ex-girlfriend of, of physical and emotional abuse, claims he has always denied. Uh, he said he wants to be an activist Attorney General. He says one of his goals is to be a check on the President's policies. And so I'll ask him about that. Uh, it was a tough race, but he did come out on top of that. So, uh, that'll be tomorrow on WCCO Sunday morning. So please tune in. 6 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on WCCO-TV. Have a wonderful evening, everybody.